Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. We're continuing in our series, Real Truth About Real Stuff. Today, we're going to look at forgiveness. It seems like a pretty simple topic. Christians are told to forgive, but it's a lot more complex than we might think. Do we always have to forgive? Is someone saying, I'm sorry, enough for us to forgive them? After we've forgiven someone, are we to move on just forgetting the hurt and the damage that they've done to us? And is reconciliation always the goal? Those are good questions, Chris, and they deserve good answers. Since Christians are to model Jesus in all that we do, the place to start is to look at how God forgives us. And the pat answer here may be that God forgives us unconditionally, but when we delve into scripture, that's not exactly true. You're right. So let's look at what scripture does say. Let's start with 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, first and foremost, the forgiveness we receive from God is undeserved. In fact, all forgiveness is undeserved. When you do something wrong, you deserve to pay for it. Being let off the hook or forgiven is completely undeserved. So forgiveness, no matter what, whether it's God bestowing it on us or us bestowing it on someone else, is always undeserved. But it's not unconditional. Even with God, forgiveness is conditioned upon us accepting Jesus as our Savior, asking God to forgive our sins, and then repenting of those sins. When we ask God for forgiveness and repent of our sin, in other words, strive to turn away from that sin and turn towards God, He is faithful to forgive us. That doesn't mean we won't commit that very sin again, but as we're growing in our faith, we should see change in ourselves. We should not be the same person we were before we're saved. Chris, what about sin we don't even realize we've committed and therefore haven't asked forgiveness for? When we become believers and have faith in Jesus' payment for our sin, we ask God for forgiveness and he forgives us our sins, past, present, and future. But as a Christian goes through their life, they will constantly be asking for forgiveness when they're convicted of sin. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Once we're a believer, the penalty for sin is removed, our relationship with God is restored, and that never changes. We can't lose our salvation. And the power of sin is broken, but we still sin, and that still affects our relationship with God in some ways. Not in a saved, not saved way, but it does affect the relationship. Here's an example. When our kids were growing up, we had rules. They knew what we expected them to do and not to do. When one of them broke the rules, say they came in after curfew, they didn't lose their status as our son or daughter. We still loved them just as much, but there was tension between us because they had disobeyed. So to clean up, for lack of a better word, the relationship, they asked us for forgiveness, and of course we granted it, although there were still consequences. Your relationship with them had never changed, and your love for them had never changed. But them asking for forgiveness made the relationship feel good again, and their conscience was free. In other words, the slate was clean, even though positionally their family status, and to relate that to God and us, from a saved status standpoint, the slate was never dirty. Exactly. Chris, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He teaches us to mortify our sin and despise it. The more we grow, the more we'll want to fall on our knees before God and confess our sins, knowing what paying for those sins cost Jesus. 
We'll want to turn away from our sin and we should feel compelled to pay forward the grace we've received to others. In applying that forgiveness to others, Jesus offers words on forgiveness in his Sermon on the Mount. In his Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus teaches us how to pray using the Lord's Prayer as a model. Most of us probably know this prayer by heart. It says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A little after this, Jesus goes on to say, If we do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will our Father forgive our trespasses. Rose, it sounds like Jesus is saying that the way in which we forgive others will be the way that he forgives us. If it does mean that, it should make every one of us cringe and worry. But thankfully, that's not what it means. However, the two are definitely connected. God doesn't use how we forgive others as the standard on how he forgives us, but we are to use how he forgives us as a model of how we're to forgive others. And whether we do or not could be an indication if we're actually saved. Right. Unforgiveness is a sin. And like every other sin, it cuts us off from God. When we're saved by Jesus, our sin is forgiven, even the sin of unforgiveness. So nowhere in the schematics of that does how we forgive others determine how God forgives us. So Rose, what does forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors mean? Well, the point of it is not to scare us that God's going to use our own nature as his gauge to forgive or not forgive us. However, it's a reminder to us of the absolute grace we've received from God through Jesus and that we should want to strive to show that same grace to others. Chris, it would be hypocrisy for us to gladly accept the grace of forgiveness for our sins given to us freely by God through Jesus, only to turn around and refuse to forgive someone else. Yeah, that's the whole point of the parable of the unforgiving servant, and it's found in Matthew chapter 18. That's where a rich ruler, who is a picture of God, forgives a massive debt of one of his servants, and that would be us, But then the servant goes and refuses to forgive a minuscule amount of debt another man owes him. And he even has that man thrown in prison. The ruler says to the man he initially forgave, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? He's then thrown into prison until he can pay back all the debt. Jesus finishes his parable by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. First, through this parable, Jesus shows us the attitude we should have when going before God. We're to confess our sins, our debts, to God, knowing that we don't deserve his mercy. We should despise and repent of our sin, throwing ourselves at the feet of God, asking forgiveness. Then he says that if we fail to pay forward the incredible grace that we've received from God through Jesus, meaning God's canceled all that debt that we owe him for our sin. If we fail to forgive our fellow man, we're not really saved. And what happens when someone's not saved? Instead of having their debt to God paid in full by Jesus, they have to pay the debt they owe God back themselves. In other words, when they stand before God, they're going to have to stand on their own record. And we all know what's going to happen then. Instead of receiving the forgiveness of their sins because they've been given the righteousness of Christ, they receive the judgment and wrath of God the Almighty Father. Luke 7, 47 affirms this when Jesus says, Those who have been forgiven little, love little. Christians need to recognize the magnitude of what we've been forgiven from through Jesus. Yeah, I love Ligonier Ministries' take on this. They say, It's arrogant indeed to withhold our forgiveness from those who ask for it sincerely. Since our infinitely holy creator forgives the repentant, 
How can we, who are unclean apart from God's mercy in Christ, dare to refuse others our pardon? Simply put, if we do not forgive, we're setting a higher bar than God does. We're exalting ourselves as better than other sinners in the Lord's eyes, and that's revealing that we have likely not understood the grace of God at all. And Chris, John Calvin has a great quote on this too. He says, Those who refuse to forget the injuries which have been done to them devote themselves willingly and deliberately to destruction and knowingly prevent God from forgiving them. Wow. In contrast to all that, a saved person who truly understands that before their hearts were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they were enemies of God and fully deserving to spend eternity in hell. That person is much more likely to love much and forgive much. They won't be so quick to withhold forgiveness from others. They'll pay forward the grace and compassion they received from God. We all sin. We all get angry, jealous, or even refuse to forgive someone. But there's a difference between sinning and living in a sinful lifestyle. Yeah, if even after we profess to be a Christian, we're living in a sinful lifestyle by having an unforgiving spirit, meaning we hardly ever forgive people or remain bitter about wrongs done to us, we need to seriously examine our hearts. It's a process to be sure, but if we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we should be able to look back 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 year ago, and see that we're growing and becoming more like Jesus. We need to keep in mind, this could be teeny tiny baby steps, but there should be progress. Galatians 5, 24-25 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I totally agree. And let's say one more thing about forgiveness. For those of us who are truly saved, withholding forgiveness from someone who's asking us for it could be toxic to our relationship with God. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So while as we said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors does not mean that God uses how we forgive others as the gauge on how he forgives us. Those two things are definitely connected. They are. And before we move on, Chris, let's finish up by clarifying something I'm reminded of. We're to forgive much. How much are we to forgive? Is there ever a period when enough is enough and you don't need to forgive someone anymore? Jesus is pretty blunt about this. In Matthew 18, 22, Jesus is answering Peter's question about must he forgive his brothers who sin against him seven times? That was what was taught by the synagogues in the Old Testament. And Peter wanted clarification if that old way was still good. So Jesus probably shocked Peter when he said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And as we know, Chris, the number seven in scripture means complete and absolute. So Jesus isn't saying, all right, forgive them 77 times and that's it. He's saying, forgive your brother or sister as many times as they come to you repenting and asking for forgiveness. Correct. So to sum up the basics on forgiveness we've been talking about, first, someone who has never had a forgiving heart needs to examine themselves because it's likely that person isn't saved. Second, because a Christian realizes the unpayable amount of debt he's been forgiven by God, His or her default on the topic should be to forgive. How many times? So many times that we couldn't even count them. And now that we've said all that, let's move on to some practicalities of the forgiveness aspect. Do we have to forgive and forget? 
Do I treat major and minor sins differently? Do I always have to forgive in every single circumstance? And then we'll move on to reconciliation. Since God tells us we're to repent of our sin and his forgiveness of us is our model, there's an aspect of repentance that we should have when we sin against others and that we should expect when someone sins against us. So, Chris, to address one of the questions we asked at the beginning, do we have to forgive someone when they have not asked us for forgiveness? That's a great point, Rose. And Jesus reiterates this in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you should forgive him. Just as someone who's chronically unforgiving probably isn't saved, Someone who never confesses and repents of the wrong they did to someone else probably isn't saved either. And Chris, just to clarify this, while sin is sin as far as God is concerned, when it comes to us being sinned against, there's definitely major and minor offenses. For example, we might snap at our spouse because we're having a bad day. Usually an I'm sorry is fine in this case. There's no need for major repentance. But someone who's been abusing us physically or emotionally That's a major offense, and the offender should be repentant before we give them forgiveness. I agree. Minor offenses should definitely be, you know, overlooked and put away, even if the offender hasn't repented. When an offense is too serious to be overlooked, though, and the offender has not yet repented, forgiveness might come in two stages. Just like when Jesus died on the cross and asked the Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, they weren't forgiven at that point. But at Pentecost, the father answers Jesus' prayer, and 3,000 of those people who were there when he was crucified realized that they had crucified the Son of God, and they repented of their sin. That's when forgiveness was complete, and they were fully reconciled to God. And that's the pattern we should follow when there's something major that's been perpetrated against us. So the first stage requires us having an attitude of forgiveness. We go to God, and we tell him, We're willing to forgive that person once they're repentant of what they've done to us. And we should pray that they would repent. You know, this might sound shocking to some of you, but understand there's a redemptive goal to this, just as there's a redemptive goal in our repentance before God. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Exactly. This is what church discipline is all about. In church discipline, a person who's a member of the church and is living in a sinful state, such as committing adultery, is excommunicated from the church. The idea is that the church prays for them to recognize and acknowledge their sin, repent of it, and come back in the fold, reconciled to their church family, and made part of it again. That's the second stage. It's repentance leading to forgiveness. We've given a lot to think about as far as forgiveness, Chris. So let's move on now to forgetting. Is the adage forgive and forget the way to go? Well, just to clarify, nowhere in the Bible is the phrase forgive and forget. And of course, it's impossible to truly forget the sins that have been committed against us. Hebrews 8.12 says, God will remember our sins no more. Well, God is all-knowing. It's not like he actually forgets our sin. He just chooses to no longer count them against us. Instead, he chooses to see Jesus' record as never having sinned. So, in that sense, God does forgive and forget. The operative word here, though, is that God chooses. 
Forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. It's a choice to obey God and trust him rather than being about the other person. Because if it's just about the other person, a lot of times there's just no way we would choose to forgive most of the time. I agree. So following God's lead, once we forgive someone, we should no longer hold the sin they perpetrated on us against them. We are, in essence, relinquishing our right to hold their offense against them. But just as God doesn't actually forget our sins, we shouldn't necessarily forget sins that have been committed against us, at least when it comes to protecting ourselves. If someone has abused you and they come to you repentant and asking for forgiveness, you should forgive them. But that doesn't mean you put yourself in harm's way with this person again. And even on a smaller scale, Rose, if someone betrays your confidence and asks you for forgiveness, you should certainly forgive them. But that doesn't mean you run and tell them any more secrets. People can be truly sorry for something they've done. And when they are, we're to follow the example of 1 Corinthians 13, 5, which says, love keeps no record of wrongs. But that doesn't mean they won't hurt us again. That's right. Since we're all broken sinners, we can be truly sorry for something we've done one day and turn around and commit that same sin the next day. The only way a person's heart can genuinely be changed is by the Holy Spirit. And until you're confident that the person who's hurt you has truly changed, it's wise to be cautious in your future encounters with them. Exactly. And once you've seen the genuine change, then you can slowly begin to trust them again. And if and when that occurs... We may be able to truly forget an offense that was done to us. So, Chris, let's answer the last question. Is reconciliation always the goal when forgiving someone? Well, there's a difference between reconciliation between believers and reconciliation between non-believers. Let's start with reconciliation between believers. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The message of the gospel is reconciliation. Jesus has reconciled us to God. And I'll add to that that we're told to preach that gospel message, the message of reconciliation. Once we're saved, our old self dies and our new self is born. That new self's no longer an enemy of God, but is accepted as part of the family of God. We've been thoroughly and completely reconciled to God, just as it was always meant to be before Adam and Eve sinned. So how does that translate to our earthly relationships within the church? Well, we need to be living the gospel message out in our churches. And one way we live that out is by wanting to, if at all possible, be reconciled with those who have sinned against us. This can be hard to do. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about it. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all the offenses. God is the one that's chiefly offended in all conflict, yet it's so difficult for mere mortals to forget their own hurt and anger and to remember that the sin causing them so much suffering is ultimately against their Heavenly Father. There's no doubt reconciliation is not easy. There can be a lot of things that hinder it, things that go beyond just the initial offense. There can be pride, anger, false assumptions, and all kinds of other emotions. The only way reconciliation is possible is if both parties are willing to put those feelings aside. We said earlier that forgiveness involves relinquishing your right to hold an offense against someone. 
This is not only crucial to reconciliation, it's got to go even farther. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. And 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So the only way reconciliation is possible between believers is for the one who has been offended to overlook and cover up the sin of the offender. But Rose, this doesn't mean that we're just going to blindly forgive, forget, and be reconciled. If we don't deal with the offense, then we never will truly be reconciled. That is very true. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 gives us the blueprint of how to begin the process of reconciliation with another believer. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is saying that when we've been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ, we're to first go to them and them only to try to work things out by speaking the truth and love to them. This is the stage where hopefully the person sees they've sinned against you and asks for forgiveness. You forgive them, and then, although you won't put yourself in harm's way of this person again, until you actually see they've genuinely changed, you figure out how to move forward in peace with each other. But if the offender isn't willing to do all that, you move up the chain of command in the church, and then, if even after the church gets involved, the person refuses to accept responsibility for their actions, All the rules for treating them as a brother or sister in Christ are out the window, and you're to treat them as you would a non-believer. Just like we talked about with church discipline. So, why is reconciliation so important, especially within a church? Well, unity in the church is very important. Jesus prays for unity in the church in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 20 to 22, which say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's impossible to have the kind of unity Jesus prays for if we have unreconciled conflicts within our congregations. The church is the bride of Christ and the world is watching. We don't want the watching world to see the bride of Christ divided as conflict undermines our relationships within. Unreconciled hurt causes bitterness and resentment which is going to dull the church's ability to bask in the goodness of God. And like we said, moving towards reconciliation doesn't mean that you forget what someone's done to you and that you put yourself in harm's way again. Moving towards reconciliation means you find a way to put the hurt aside, forgive the sin, and move on in peace with each other. Sometimes people just won't like each other, and full-fledged reconciliation is not going to be possible. When that happens, we need to fall back on Luke 6.27, which says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. When you reach a point where complete reconciliation is not going to happen, you need to at least agree that you'll put the situation behind you, love the person that's wronged you, in the sense that you're going to look out for their interests and not do them any harm. And Chris, 
I'm sure there's people saying, this is a huge ask. You don't know what this person has done to me. And that's true. We don't know the wrongs people have suffered at the hands of someone else, even within the church. And understand, we are in no way making light of anything any of you may have endured. But the reason we need to take the road you laid out is because of Romans 5.10, which says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Rose, again, we're going to defer to Ligonier Ministries, who gives an excellent commentary on this. They say, Reconciliation can be a painful process. God understands this. It took the life of his son to reconcile sinful man to himself. He has not called his people to sacrifice their children in order to appease an earthly enemy. He has called us to sacrifice our pride in order to model his message of reconciliation to others. He's called us to live peaceably with all men. When that fails, he calls us to love unselfishly from a heart that's been reconciled to God. He calls us to remember that we are new creations with new affections and new behavior and that we were first loved when we were enemies. Wow. I certainly can't argue with that. So, Chris, let's finish up with the scriptures say about reconciliation when the person who offended us is not a believer. Must Christians always reconcile with a non-Christian? Well, we should start by saying yes, if at all possible. As we quoted earlier, Paul tells us in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So if the person who has hurt you comes to you regretting what they've done and asking for your forgiveness, you should forgive them. And as we said, that doesn't mean you forget what they've done and put yourself back in harm's way. And if reconciliation is not possible, we should still fall back on love our enemies. If, though, the person has hurt you shows no remorse, nor do they ask your forgiveness, then we can fall back on Peter's words in 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, we have no idea who the Holy Spirit may be regenerating at any given moment. That's true. And that's why our behavior as believers needs to be above reproach with everyone that we come in contact with. We need to be a light in the world. Without even knowing it, we might be witnessing to someone who's in the process of being brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's where we need to end today. We hope we've given you some things to meditate on. And if you listen to our last two podcast episodes, you know we're talking about biblical meditation and not the Eastern religious meditation. No om. <laughs> no om and no empty in your mind. If you want a supplement to help you meditate on scripture, our book and companion study guide, No Half Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message, is now available on Amazon and through all major book outlets. Thanks, everyone. Have a blessed day.